And so, Lord, as we open your word this morning, continue to worship. We just ask that you would reveal more of yourself to us, Lord, that we might not just know you better, but that we follow you with a glad heart. Thank you for this day and this time we gather. And as we ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated this morning. So glad to be with you this morning. Band, what a great job y'all did. I didn't realize there were people on vacation this morning. You'd never know it, would you? You'd never know it. Amen. That's right. Don't tell the guys that aren't here that because we like to have everybody back, don't we? Hey, have y'all noticed, especially those of you who have been here for a while, that I like to tell a story to tell a story? Uh, Jerry Clower used to have a great way. He and, and Bill Cosby, who both are wonderful storytellers, by the way, they would say, I told you that story so I could tell you this one, right? They would get your, your brain in the right frame of reference so that you could understand what was coming next. It was also a very good way of kind of throwing you off a little bit so you didn't try to over-anticipate what he was trying to tell you. And so I like to do that, and uh, I, 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 I found this week in Scripture that God does the same thing sometimes. Um, and so I, I want to tell you a couple of stories, and then we're going to get into the Word. But, but some of you may or may not know this. Uh, anybody lose a ton of money in the early 2000s from dot-com? Me either. I, I didn't have anything then, and, and I don't have much now, so I didn't lose a lot. But there, there was a guy named uh, 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 James Doty, and uh, he actually invented something called uh, the cyber knife. And the cyber knife was a way that allowed people to do intricate brain surgeries and to treat certain types of cancers, particularly brain cancers, uh, that were more difficult to do so. Uh, anyway, in his invention and his patent and everything else, he was worth $75 million almost overnight. And, and he pledged, because he thought this was going to save lives and such a good thing, he pledged $30 million of that to go to certain charities. Well, all of a sudden in the dot-com, he loses almost all of his fortune except for the $30 million that he had set aside for these charities. And so his lawyers, being the people that they are, God bless you if you're a lawyer, uh, says, you know, James, there's a way to get out of this. I think they'll understand. And he had this dilemma about, well, I made a promise that I was going to give these $30 million to this charity. I need to do this. This is, this is what is right. This is what I've said. I've not only said it publicly, I've also said it privately, too. I should do this. And so he wrestled with all of this, and eventually he did the right thing and gave that $30 million and pretty much bankrupted him at that point. Now, he bounced back a little bit, but he actually also uh, created a center for entrepreneurial and uh, um, charitable societies, and so he's, he's done a lot with what he learned from that by doing the right thing. That, we might consider that to be something of integrity, right? Um, uh, another story, if you're a tennis fan, which I, I am not, um, I, I can watch golf a little bit longer, but tennis, I, it just it gets turned fast, right? But I know who some of these people are. There's a guy named Andy Roddick, he used to be a really good tennis player. 2005, he was playing in the uh, Italian Open and he was uh, very high ranked as far as uh, uh, the points for whatever it is. He's one of the top players in the world, and his opponent was not. And um, uh, at the end of this match, uh, the line judge called a ball out. It was actually a, a serve. It was an ace, and Roderick, could, he couldn't return it. And the judge called it out, which made him the winner of that and eliminated the other player. But Roddick actually said, you know what, the ball's in. And he brings the line judge over, and he shows him the line. I think we've got a picture of that. Just That's not the actual one, by the way. But he brings the, 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 the line judge over, and he shows him on the clay court, this is the mark where the ball hit. 
Well, the other player had already conceded. He came to the net to shake hands, and Roddick's saying, no, you actually won this point. The player went on to beat Roddick, game set and match. Roddick's out of the tournament. They said that one decision cost him tens of thousands of dollars. But it gained him a tremendous amount of respect in his sport amongst the sports world and those who watched it. Because Roddick at the moment, just like Mr. Doty, had the integrity to do what was right regardless of the cost. Integrity is, it matters. It, it matters to each and every one of us because, uh, and if, you, if you're taking notes, I would write this statement down, that, that integrity uh, is on the outside reveals what is really on the inside, right? Like, like when, we, when we do something of high integrity, people see that, and that came hopefully from the inside. Now, that's not to say that people aren't playing the system, but integrity matters. It matters to everybody. I have often quoted my father when it comes to integrity, and he's reminded me over and over, still does. I'm not really sure how I should take this, but he still reminds me over and over that integrity is not something that can be taken away from me. It is something that I have to give up. You can't take integrity away from me. I have to forfeit it. I have to give it up. Likewise, I can't just tell you that I'm a person of integrity. I have to demonstrate to you that I'm a person of integrity. It's one of those very actionable character traits that we have to demonstrate in all that we do. And likewise, when someone demonstrates a lack of integrity, we see it, don't we? It's on display. And it's, it's, it's amazing what one miscalculation, one decision to not exercise integrity, to not do what is right, especially when it matters, how that ripple affects into so many other of our relationships. So many others. If you want an example, just look at our political system. That ought to be enough for you, right? I mean, I have to be fair. We got a, a, a leak in the integrity ship in our nation for sure. And it makes it to where you just can't seem to trust people. Not just trust their word, but the trust to do what they say they're going to do, especially when it matters most. And that's really where integrity comes into play. Now, for some of you who are engineers and, and think more science and mathematics, you understand that integrity says that this bridge will hold me, right? And, and the integrity of that bridge is so important. Not only will it hold me, it will hold the thousands of people that cross this bridge every day. And these people may never know my name, they may not know that I designed this, but they are counting on the integrity of that bridge and the integrity of the engineer and the integrity of the materials and the integrity of everything that goes into that so that I can take one step on their incompetence. But you show me where someone has failed to do that, show me an architect who damaged his integrity, gave away his integrity, and I'll show you somebody who's never going to build another building. And nobody's ever going to trust it, are they? We do that with products. You get a bad rap on a product, man, the integrity of that product goes away. I never want to use that again, particularly if I find that someone lied about the tests that were put out there, right? Integrity matters, and this is not just a spiritual issue. It is an issue for all of humanity because in every relationship we deal with integrity. Romans chapter 14 is a, a great word on that. It says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, I, I throw that out there because we're not going to go to Romans today. We're actually going to be in Jeremiah chapter 34 and 35. And I want you to go ahead and turn there if you can. But we're going to talk a lot about accountability over the next couple of weeks as we continue to walk through Jeremiah. And accountability, as, as Paul would write in Romans, is to say that we're all going to be accountable before God. Now, while he was writing to the church at Rome, 
The truth of the matter is, is that every human being will stand before God and they will have an account of their actions, of their life, of the decisions, of the choices that they made. And what we see in chapters 34 and 35, this is where Jeremiah really impresses me, is we kind of see this back and forth that's happening. And the question we're going to ask is, what would you do? Because that's really integrity, right? What would you do? And, and you can see that on the screen there. In chapter 34, Jeremiah is specifically talking directly to the Israelites. And they are God's chosen people. And he's telling them, a word from God comes to them, and he's specifically telling them, this is your opportunity to exercise integrity, to do what you said you would do and do it right. And in chapter 35, what we get to is that in 34, they pretty much ignore Jeremiah. And he says, well, you know what? Since I have your attention this morning, let me tell you a story about a story. Let me tell you what happened in the past to give you an example of why you're making a bad choice to disregard my warning in chapter 34. And he brings up this clan called the Rechabites. And the Rechabites are not Jewish. They're not Hebrew. They are a blessed people. They're actually connected all the way back to Jehu, who was part of Moses' father-in-law's clan. And so it goes all the way back. And so Moses has father-in-law. He's got people who are not Jewish because he, he, he actually marries a, a, a Mennonite. I always say Mennonite. I'm like, there's like, there's a certain religion there, right? Mennonite, right? He marries this Mennonite woman, and her father is a really sharp dude. And they end up attaching themselves to the nation of Israel, and they are traveling around with them. And so they have a good symbiotic relationship, if you will. But they're still kind of keeping themselves, so they're just a little bit different. They're just not God's chosen people. And by that, what I mean is God did not choose for Messiah to come through the Rechabites. He chose for them to come through the nation of Israel, right? And so what we see are these two stories. And so Jeremiah warns King Zedekiah in 34. Zedekiah pretty much ignores him. And he says, you know what, while I've got your attention, let me tell you a story about the Rechabites. Let me tell you why they exercised integrity so much better than what you did. And so this morning, I'm going to bounce back and forth between 34 and 35. And so if you have your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me. And we're going to answer this question is, what would you do when the pressure is on? You see, that's when our integrity really starts to get challenged. It's when, when we start to get squeezed a little bit, right? When those, those parameters are there. And so what would you do when the pressure is on? And so at first, what we're going to see is the pressure that comes to to Judah, the last remaining uh, tribe uh, of, of Israel. Now, the setting of this, it, it, to kind of catch you up to where we've been, is Judah is all that remains of all of Israel. And they're actually been under attack and being surrounded by Babylon. And God had called out very early saying that I'm going to send someone from the north to come after you guys. And Judah has been trying to make all these different deals, and they have not been obeying God. They've not only been worshiping idols, they've been teaching their children to worship idols, even doing so in the temple to offer sacrifices to false gods in the temple. Bad things are happening. And yet they're saying, I don't know why all these bad things are happening. We've totally dis disrespected God and all that we've done. But I don't know, we're his chosen people. After all, he loves us, right? And so God sends Jeremiah to go and be a prophet to the nation, to call them out and to tell them to return back to me, to repent. His message of repentance is over and over and over again, saying that if you don't repent, this is what God promised is going to happen. And so here we find it in chapter 34, verses 1. We see the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the 
kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all its cities. Now, just look at that one verse for just a moment and just realize the entire world is against you. Literally. Literally. Nebuchadnezzar and all these kings and all the people and all the stuff and all the stuff, everybody is out to get you. This is not paranoia. This is reality. There are seriously people out to get you. And if we continue to read in chapter 34, what we find is there are three cities left in all of Jerusalem that have not fallen, or in all of Israel that have not fallen. Jerusalem, uh, Achish, and um, uh, Lachish, and Azekah, right? And these are the only cities that are still fortified. And so basically of all this great nation, there are three cities that are left, and Babylon is beginning to siege them, to surround them, to choke them out, to cut them out, because their desire is not just to kill them all, their desire is to capture them, embarrass them, take them out of the land, because God's going to exile them. God's using Babylon to punish them and get them out. And so when the pressure is on, and it literally is on, what will happen next is that Zedekiah is going to get a word from Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is going to say, listen, if you'll repent, God will push them away. And he chooses not to do so. And he says, because you're not going to repent, you, Zedekiah, king of Judah, you're going to be taken out of here with your family, and instead of killing you immediately, you're actually going to live for a really long time in Babylon, and that's where they're going to bury you. Now, it may not seem like such a bad deal for you, but basically the punishment is you get to live and watch the outcome of your bad decisions and the destruction that it brings upon all of your people. And the dishonor for you is that you're going to be buried in a foreign land, not in the promised land that God gave you. It's, it's actually quite damaging when you, when you look at the history of going, man, why? You're the king of Judah, and God said that you don't deserve a king's burial. But instead, you're going to have to live a long time and see how your actions impacted your entire society. I'm going to bless you with long life so you can live in your own prison for all these years. Now, in like fashion, we look at how Jeremiah speaks of the Rechabites in chapter 35. And he says this in chapter 35, verses 1 and 2. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. Now, this is why this is so important. The interaction between, between Jehoiakim and the Rechabites was 16 years previous to what's going on in chapter 34. And so that's why Jeremiah is saying, you know, let me tell you a story about what happened about 15 years ago. Whenever you guys made a choice and didn't do it right, and there was these Rechabites. Now, the Rechabites, they lived under a code that their, their great-grandfather Jehoadab had given them. And he said to them, never own land, never live in houses, don't plant vineyards, live in tents, and never drink wine. Now, listen, before you start wondering, oh, here he goes again on his alcohol kick, that's not where I am. And if you've already checked out for that, God bless you. What I am telling you is that the great-grandfather had said this for his people, and he'd given them a legacy. And now God is bringing these people into Jerusalem because what's happening is that Babylon's still surrounding and there's lots of cities left 16 years ago. But now, in the present, we're down to three. And so here they are wandering about the desert, and they're dealing with all these armies that are opposing, coming after them. And they're saying, you know what, we probably ought to seek sanctuary, and let's go to Jerusalem, the city of God. 
Let's go to his temple. Let's go to his people. Let's go to the king at the time who was Jehoiakim and say, listen, we've sought refuge in your land and you've always given that to us. And now we're here because we have no homes and we have no vineyards and we don't have crops and we don't do any of these things. We're here to seek refuge. Would you let us come in? And God says to Jeremiah, invite these Rechabites in and offer them wine. Now, it might seem like this is a test, but it's not. It's not even a story about whether you should or shouldn't drink wine. What it is is God being on full display and saying, Jeremiah, I'm going to show you the difference between people who have integrity and people who don't have integrity. Put the pressure on them and see how they act. Put the pressure on them and see how quickly they fold. Put the pressure on them and see what happens. Here's Jerusalem and Judah and the Israelites who have all these surrounding armies and everybody against them, and they're about to make some really bad decisions. Here's the Rechabites who are going to have their culture, their culture, who they are, challenged. The pressure is on. What would you do? How would you respond? We don't have any place to live. That means we don't have any fortified cities. That means we don't have any defenses. If we're just out roaming amongst the plains, we don't have anything. And they're going to take us. Well, come on in. Have a little wine. Sell your soul for protection. Doesn't that seem like something we've heard before? Something we've maybe listened to. If you've ever read the book Hansel and Gretel, isn't that, oh, come on in, have a slave. You remember the, the Chronicles of Narnia? Have a little turkey's delight. Don't kill it. When the pressure is on, how do you respond? How do you behave? Is your integrity intact? We could look at the entire book of Job and see that where the pressure was constantly on by no doing of his own. What would you do? Perhaps that's why the writer of Proverbs tells us in, in Proverbs 11.3 that the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Because what you see, and we're going to see here in a moment, is that the Rechabites are going to refuse to drink wine. They're going to give a very good reason for why they refuse to do so. That, but that's because whenever we walk in integrity, we don't walk into harm's way, and we don't avoid it thinking things are going to be better. We do what is right because it's right because we know it's right, because we've said it to be right, we've determined it to be right in our heart. And that's where integrity really comes from. When it comes out of the outside, it comes demonstration on the, uh, from the inside, it comes from demonstration on the outside, we're just basically saying, I have a code by which I live by, and I'm choosing to live by that code under all circumstances because it is right, not just because I'm stubborn, not just because I'm arrogant, but because it's right. In the case of the Rechabites, it's right because their grandfather said to never do this. In the case of the Israelites, it's right because God actually has made a covenant with them. And he says, this is what I'm telling you to do. And if you will honor my covenant, you'll live. But if you break my covenant, you'll die. It's really that simple. Over and over and over again. And so when the pressure's on, we have to ask our, ourselves, what will we do? But what about when the pressure is off? Because that also is a demonstration of our integrity, right? Our integrity cannot be situational. Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 8, starting there. Jeremiah had already spoken to, to the king, and he says, listen, you guys need to repent. You need to, to, to trust God and follow him, and, and all this stuff will go away. And they wouldn't do it. And so here's what happens next. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slaves, male or female, 
so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But, did you catch that? In verse 11, but afterward they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjugation as slaves. Now, here's why this is interesting. God had already laid out the rules, the laws for them, and said, listen, should someone owe you money or be in debt to you, you can take them as an indentured servant for seven years. And everybody understands this interaction well. You owe, you can't pay, you come and serve. And for seven years, you will treat that bond servant well. You'll take care of them, and they'll work off their debt. But in seven years, you have to let them go regardless. No questions asked. Seven years is up. You turn them loose. Now, if they choose to stay, that's a different story. If they marry while they're there, that's a different story. And Leviticus and Deuteronomy tell us all about the intricate details of that. But the reality is, is that you made a covenant, literally a covenant, to say, if, if you owe me and you come into my service, let's cut an animal in half and say, in seven years from now, I'm going to let you go, or whatever ha- that animal happens to me. Or if you run away or break down your part of the agreement, whatever happens, that animal happens to me. That's a covenant that's cut in blood. Now, the Jewish people should have really understood this. They not only appreciated covenants, they liked to hold covenants against people a lot. Circumcision is a covenant cut in blood that says that you are my people. God says you're mine. On the eighth day, a child should be circumcised, a a male child. Dedicate him to the Lord. Make a covenant with him forever that he would serve him and know him forever. They made multiple covenants with them. And if you'll see in verse 11, what happens is, is that Zedekiah got all the people together and they freed up all the slaves and they made a covenant that day and said, we're going to honor what God told us to do a long time ago because things are good right now. And by doing so, we're going to set all these people free. Now, there could have been an economic reason for this. They might have said, you know what, we got all these slaves here, and we're under attack by Babylon, so the smartest thing for us to do is to to let them free because we can't force them to fight on our behalf because they could actually realize we're outnumbered and they could revolt. Now, realize this is the ruling parties that are making all these decisions. The king and all the, the nobles and all those people are making this happen. And they said, you know, it's probably smarter for us to let them go now because we can't afford to feed our slaves, and that's our responsibility to do so. So why don't we let them go? Well, it, it, there's a sense that Babylon had relented a little bit and that they weren't putting on all the pressure, so the pressure was off. And so what does the king and all the rich nobles do to protect their wealth? Hey, we should take these guys back as slaves and give them to you. The pressure's off. Babylon's not coming against us. We should take them back as slaves again. They broke the covenant. Their integrity was on display and was questioned right then and there. And this is what Jeremiah is saying to Zedekiah. If you're wondering what that looks like, let me tell you what you just did. It's within you to make another set of bad decisions. You've already demonstrated that, and all the people around you know that, even when the pressure's off. But remember, in chapter 35, that Jeremiah had brought in the Rechabites and had offered them wine. But look what it says in 35, verse 5 through 10. This is Jeremiah speaking. It says, Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they answered, We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall drink 
Uh, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant or have a vineyard. But you shall live in tents all the days of your life, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, our daughters, are not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed all done that Jonadab, our father, has commanded us to do so. The, the pressure's off because Jonadab and Rechab had made a deal to say that we can sojourn in the land of Israel, but we have promised our grandfather and great-grandfather that we'll never do these things. And now here we are in front of you, and you're offering up to us, and we're just going to say, you know what, no thank you. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. We, we made a deal with our grandfather to do this. Now, there's something really interesting here that I want to make sure you don't miss. God's chosen people made a covenant with God, and they broke it repeatedly. Breaking a covenant with God is bad enough, but once you do that, breaking a covenant with individuals really is not that hard. And that's why they brought their slaves back in under slavery. It really wasn't that big a deal. We can violate God's agreement. We can violate agreement with you. When the pressure's on or when the pressure's off, our integrity's already bad. But here are these Rechabites saying, you know what, things are tough for us. Things are hard for us. And we're in agreement here to sojourn in your land. And God actually has rules to tell you how to treat those who sojourn in your land. And things are bad because these armies are coming. All those people are against you guys, and we're suffering because of that. But we're not going to break the covenant that we have with our great-grandfather. We're not going to drink wine. Thank you for the offer, but no thank you. It's not that we think wine is evil or anything else. We just said that we never would, and we never have, and we never will, because we're people of integrity. Now, I find this particularly interesting in regards to integrity. God's chosen people have no difficulties violating integrity. But just anybody else out on the street, integrity matters. And while this is a deeply spiritual conversation, the reality is it doesn't really matter where you are spiritually. Integrity matters to you too. And it matters to you because it's, it's, it's a development of trust. Now you might find this interesting, I do at least, that here are the Jews that we in our current culture really mock for tradition. If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Tin Roof, you ever seen that movie? Tradition, right? That's one of the songs, right? And we talk about how Jews are all wrapped up in all these traditions. And, and, and their tradition seems to be make a covenant with God, wait for things to get easy, break the covenant with God. That seems to be the tradition for them. And the Rechabites are like, hey, our tradition is that we, we don't do these things. It doesn't really matter to the situation. We, that's just not who we are. In fact, we're called out because we don't do these things. We're separated from everybody else who does all these things, and, and we don't do them. We don't do them whether the pressure's on or the pressure's off because that's not who we are because we're people of integrity. And yet you guys would enslave people, would violate the rules that God set out for you at the drop of a hat. We're going to obey our ancestors, which again, the irony the Rechabites say we're going to obey our ancestors only back maybe three, four, five generations top. Where here we are in Judah, where they're going to go all the way back to Moses, which probably, I don't know, 15 to 25 generations. 
no, 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 the law of Moses says this. We're going to hold to that. Wait a minute. You guys ought to be pros at this. You ought to be experts at this. You ought to know when you violated God's rules. You should be the example for all the rest of us. You should, Zedekiah, king of all the, the, the people of Judah, stand on the tower, look at Nebuchadnezzar, and say, the Lord our God fights for us because we're doing what's right. But you can't because you're not a person of integrity. You can't stand and defend yourself, God's law, God's rules, or anybody else once your integrity is compromised. And nobody took it away from you. You gave it away. You sacrificed it. When the pressure was on, it was easy. When the pressure was off, it was even easier. You have a new tradition. You know those people you can't count on? Don't raise your hand in front of strangers. You know those people you can't count on? The funny thing is, you can count on them to not be able to be counted on. They've shown you a new tradition. Deuteronomy chapter 7, it's a wonderful chapter, by the way. Moses writes, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Man, this is what we can know about God, is that he keeps his promises to a thousand generations. God's not going to change on us just because our circumstances change. In fact, we need him to not change. Not just so we know where to run back to, to know that we don't have to run away from him to begin with. When the, the New Testament tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that just means that we are not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And isn't it good to know that we can go back to them? And what a sad state of affairs that God's chosen people said, we can't count on you to make the right decision. But here we see the Rechabites are this example of saying, you know what, somebody's capable of doing the right thing. And sadly, it's not God's chosen people. Which leads me to the third question. What would you do when others are impacted? I think perhaps this is the most grievous part of being people who violate their integrity. Is that we don't fully recognize or realize, and maybe we're just a little selfish or self-absorbed to look and say that when my integrity is given away, when I'm not a person of integrity, it doesn't just impact me and how people see me. That's probably part of the problem. It's all been about me. It's not been about the rest of the people that count on me, that are relying upon me, that, that trust me and count on me. I mean, parents, some of you walk this mile with your kids. You know that sometimes your kids do things, and you recognize it, and you discipline them for it, but you know that they learned it by watching you. Right? It's kind of like, uh, now I know we all have our own personal cell phones and nobody has, you know, a party line or caller ID anymore. But caller ID was an interesting tool when it would pop up on the little box. Y'all remember that? Phone would ring, mom would say, answer the phone, tell them I'm not here. And then, you know, something happens down the road, your kid's at a friend's house, you call over there, your number pops up on the caller ID, tell mom I'm not here. How dare you lie to me? Who taught you how to do that? The old commercial from the 80s, you, all right, I learned it by watching you. What would you do when your decisions impact others? Well, look with me in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 15. Again, Jeremiah's having this conversation with Zedekiah and the kings, and he says, you guys, you broke your covenant, you set the slaves free, and then you went back and, and recaptured them. But he says something really interesting, starting in verse 15, he says, you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes. 
Jesus by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. This is God talking. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjugation to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you should not you should have obeyed me by proclaiming liberty every one of you to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that were made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. Man. This is serious, right? Because what he said at the very beginning of that passage was, you recently repented. You did the right thing. You had full knowledge and ability and choice to do the right thing, and you did it. And I was so proud of you for the moment, and you were so committed to doing it that you cut a calf in half, you gathered all the people, and you said, we're going to honor the Lord our God. The Lord is one. We're going to do what his law commands, and all of you who are slaves are going to be set free, not just because the law demands it, but because God demands it. And all the people rejoice, free and slave no more. You knew the right thing to do when the pressure was on, and then it went away and things got a little easier in your life. You went right back, and you did it big. And somehow, somewhere, maybe you thought, eh, God knew that I didn't really mean it, or maybe God knew and he's going to forgive me anyway, or you know what? I'm the ruler of this kingdom. I'm going to do what I want to do. Let's capture these people as slaves again. And God said, here you go again. Integrity for you was just an activity. It wasn't part of your character. Integrity was just something that worked for you for the, for the moment, for the situation. It, it, it's not something that you truly live your life by. And so since you seem to be so fond of covenants, let me tell you how the backside of this happens when you violate a covenant. I'm going to make a horror out of you. People are going to know what I did to you and why I did it because you're not people of integrity. And they're going to know it for generation and generation and generation and generation. We know those people who don't live with integrity and we still, we still use them as examples, don't we? Ken Lay, anybody know that name? Enron. We still talk about those things. People who turned the tables, didn't do what was right. You can come up with thousands of examples of those. Jeremiah taking the opportunity to preach, though, while he's still telling the story of the Rechabites, trying to explain to them what had happened. Look what he says in 35, 12. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is what I find is particularly interesting. He proclaims again who he is, talking about another set of people who are not his, the God of Israel. Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which means everybody, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept. And they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. 
I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disasters that I pronounced against them because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. To the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done all he commands you, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before him. That is kind of a backhanded compliment. I want to remind you, that this conversation that Jeremiah had with Rechab, with the house of Rechab, was 16 years prior to what's going on with Zedekiah. And God said that I sent to you prophets, I sent to you the word, I sent to you calling you to repent, and if you don't do it, I'm going to pour out upon you my, my, the wrath of my hand. Things got a little lighter, and they made a covenant, and they freed the slaves, and they, they did the da-da-da-da-da. But in their hearts, they kept on sinning. They never really meant it. They went back to their old ways. And now in verse 30, chapter 34, God's pouring it out, saying, if you had time, you could have repaired some of this damage. But you know what? These Rechabites, they're capable of doing what their forefathers asked them to do. And I'm going to reward them for that. I'm going to bless them for that. There will always be a Rechabite that stands before me. I will not wipe all of them out. And as for you, Judah, I'm going to take care of most of you. I'm going to reserve you as a remnant because you're my chosen people. But you know what? These people aren't any different than you. They just made different choices. They just made different decisions. When it mattered most, when it impacted others, the Rechabites did the right thing. But for you, Judah, when it mattered most and impacted others, you did what you wanted to do and not what the Lord commanded. Many of us know Proverbs 22.6 that reminds us, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. And I wonder if the Rechabites knew that, right? I wonder if they're sitting there going, you know, Jonadab told us not to drink wine, not to have vineyards, not to have houses, to live in tents and move about the land. You know, he told us that generation after generation back, and here we are. When push comes to shove, we're going to do what is right and not depart from his word. That's why, parents, we do what we, what we try to do to teach our kids what is right. Not just so they'll do it in front of us, but they'll do it when they're not in front of us. They'll do it when we're no longer here for them to call and reach out and take advice from. They know the right thing to do, and they do it because it's part of their character, a godly character. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7 says, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. It matters that we do the right thing, not just for this generation, but for the next. And it matters because God says that I will keep my word from generation to generation to up to a thousand generations. If God made that promise then, the promise is still good today. So that means we still got to live up to our part of the agreement as well. Paul writes.
writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8.21, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's side, but also in the side of man. Having integrity is not just doing what's right so God will bless us and God will approve of us. To be perfectly honest with you, once you enter into a covenant, doing what the covenant says, it's just meeting the minimum expectations. There's nothing to write home about. You just did what you said you were going to do. And many of you are in a covenant right now with your HOA. How exciting is that, huh? And your HOA says you bought the house, you signed the paperwork, you mow your yard. My HOA and I, we're going to have to come to terms on some definitions. I put my garbage out one Monday morning. Garbage day is Tuesday for me. And the reason why I did so is because I was going out of town. And I just put a bag out on the front. I got a picture of the bag and a letter sent to me saying, no, no, you can only put your garbage out Monday afternoon. You can't put it out Monday morning. Now, the timestamp said 10 a.m. I just need to know what afternoon really means. Is that 12.01? Maybe we could go to evening. Are we talking American evening or Latin American evening? Because we have little Venezuela that lives in Katy, right? And so we may have different definitions of what evening is. Evening is 6 for me. It's 8.30 for others. Nonetheless, I'm in a covenant agreement with them. We both say we're going to do what we're supposed to do. That's why I like to return information back to my HOA, reminding them of the boat that's parked next to their driveway down by the garage, reminding them that the grass hasn't been mowed in the common areas, reminding them of different things that are like, you're in a covenant agreement, right? We stand in integrity. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't doubt that at all. Others are like, oh, my gosh, I'm glad you got redeemed now. Titus chapter 2 tells us, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. Our integrity matters because our reflection of integrity of doing what is right always, not just when it suits us or in the situation is, is favorable for us, our integrity matters because we represent the Lord well. Our integrity matters because people are watching for us. Our integrity on the outside reveals what's really on the inside. James writes to us in James chapter 4. It says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. This was exactly the words that Jeremiah was trying to package before Zedekiah in chapter 34 and saying, you guys know the right thing to do. You're crying out loud. You made a covenant. You literally killed an animal, spilled it blood all over the place, had prophets open fire saying, this is what we're going to do. And you changed your mind and you went back and you broke your own agreement. I doubt very seriously all the slaves got together, unionized and said, you know, we should go to the king and say, hey, let's make a covenant together. That came from the top down, not from the bottom up. You guys did the wrong thing and you knew it. That's what actually makes it worse is that you knew it. You can't even feign ignorance. How often do we use the law to prove our own point. And yet here are people like the Rechabites, just doing what's right, right? Doing what's right because they made a covenant. The good news is that God never demonstrates a lack of integrity. And as his people, we should choose to do the same thing. If I were to say that a different way, it would be this. It would be simply for the believer, 
Scripture doesn't just expose their character, it exposes God's character in us. That's probably the worst thing for me as a believer and to watch believers is to watch them have some sort of situational bias. Is to watch them make decisions in the moment that 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 they they seem to somehow separate between what is spiritual and what is not spiritual. By the way, if you remember anything about some of the Romans teaching was is that we're new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, and that there's a, a Holy Spirit that is dwelling within me, as, as Angelo so wonderfully taught. There's a Holy Spirit that is dwelling within me, helping me to understand that my integrity matters, not just because of my stance before God, but because others are watching my integrity. And they're trying to to understand and figure out, is this really who they are? And what they really ought to be seeing is, man, there is something in you that has changed your character forever. And a smart, wise Christian would say, you know what that is? That's God in me. That is the Holy Spirit that dwells in me, and that is a demonstration of God's character changing my character. And so as much as I'd love for you to see my character changing, what I really want you to see is God's character coming out of my life. That I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, when I'm going to say I'm going to do it with a respectful attitude, and I'm going to reflect God who has changed me. Believers, we have a great example God's chosen people failed on that. It didn't give us a pass. It just helps us understand how much we really need Jesus, how much we really need to know his word, all of it, not just sometimes and what suits us, but to know it. And when we know his word, our lives are shaped by his word. And the character of God that's displayed out on these pages is displayed out in everything I say and do and go in public and in private. And integrity matters. And it matters so much these days that when we see a person of integrity, we think that it's unique. We think that it's something to be praised and celebrated. And really, we ought to look at it and go, that's how we all are. It's not to say that they shouldn't be rewarded for doing what is right. I think think we should recognize that. But it's becoming such a way that when we see everyday integrity on display, we're surprised. We're surprised. that's my question for you this morning is what would you do what would you do when the pressure's on the pressure's off and it matters and impacts the lives of others would you be a person of integrity would you be a person that someone can always go to to know the right thing to do i'll leave you with a story that i have to tell you that i'm a little bit proud of but i also tells me the environment that i'm in years ago some of you know i, I used to work for lowe's kept getting these phone calls from, from all my peer store managers from around the city, and they would call me and they'd ask me questions. And most of the time it was about disciplining an employee, perhaps terminating an employee. They would call me and they're like, hey, listen, I got this employee, this situation that's going on, you know, what, what would you do? How, how would you handle it? And I'd go, well, this, you know, I'd kind of run through the list of all the other stuff like this. And I said, finally, like after about two or three months of this, I'm getting all these phone calls. And I'm like, each store has in-house human resources. The district has a human resource person that they report to. The state of Texas, the region, has a human resource person and a team that they all report to. We even have a hotline that we can call. Why are these people calling me? Well, I call my boss, and I'm like, dude, what is going on here? He goes, oh, that's simple. He says, I know what I would tell him to do, and that would probably get me fired. So I tell him to call you because you'll tell him the right thing to do. 
can, but this ain't my job. You're telling the right thing to do. Oh, I wish that were all my kids, huh? Wouldn't you like to be the person that they call up and say, tell me the right thing to do? Just warning you, we're going to make that phone call and ask that question. Be prepared to respond to that. I think in the believer's heart, the Holy Spirit tells us the right thing to do is to live a right life. And let those things flow out of us. And that was Judah. Mm, this is not my job. I'm just going to live my life. Rechabites, my root and tradition, what we do here. Can it be hurt theologically? Maybe we don't have enough for people to take away, but maybe we're still here. And because we've done what we're told to do, This morning, we're going to participate in yet another covenant. Christ, whenever he 